Hi, welcome back to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Today in episode two, I'm going to be catching up with my good friend, Dr. Beth Moose, and we're going to be talking about tropical medicine and snake bite. Welcome to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Check out our website at www.thewildernessmedic.com. Expedition Resources, Wilderness Medicine Blog, and much more. So um, on this episode, I'd like to welcome Dr. Beth Moose, um, and we're going to be discussing various different things, um, focusing a bit on snake bite and sort of taking a slightly more tropical medicine um, approach compared with uh, episode one. So hi, Beth. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, no, you're very welcome. So... Um, Beth, you're a GP trainee still, aren't you, um, in Oxford? Is that right? That's I always right. get this wrong. Yeah, so I'm yeah. now ST3, um, based in a practice in Headington in Oxford, yeah. Yes, fantastic. And so, obviously, we first met, was it at a, it was at an event somewhere, wasn't it? Uh, it might have been, was it the World Geographical Society? Um, I can't remember I, now. I think it was also at a, uh, don't we? yeah. Anyway, so how, how did you get, when did your interest in sort of tropical medicine all, all start? Was it sort of um, at medical school or since qualifying? Was, was When did it all start? Yeah. Um, so I think it sort of, yeah, sort of maybe started even before that when I was thinking about doing medicine. Um, I was lucky enough to actually get some work experience in India, just a couple of days with a doctor in, um, in Mumbai in the hospital there, which was um, an interesting insight into well I mean had been into many hospitals at that point but um was able to see some of the differences um com- comparing uh, the UK and India um and, and seeing the different variety of um tropical things that they get there so that's probably where it started um sure. and, you know in medical school and did my elective in uh, Kathmandu in Nepal and then sort of continued continued from there really yeah okay and um and you did the diploma up in in Liverpool, that you've successfully convinced me is a great idea to do <laughs> as well. Um, yeah. How was that? And do you think that sort of influenced your your interest in tropical diseases as well? Oh, massively. Um, for me, uh, I mean, it really was a game changer in terms of um, my career. And I think, you know, I did it post F2 where, you know, you've got a bit more time. Um, and I'd just come back from three months in Borneo doing some expedition medicine there. So it's great to sort of reinforce that sort of practical experience then with some um, factual knowledge uh, and it was just a brilliant opportunity to be inspired really I mean some wonderful lecturers um, covering a, a wide range of topics um, and just surrounded by a fantastic group of like-minded people as well and that's really where I sort of yeah discovered um, snake bite which is obviously the thing that I'm um, really interested in now so it's really had a, a massive impact for me and I think yeah, probably- I think a lot of these things. It's it's certainly I agree. It's nice being around people who sort of have those common beliefs that there are things you can do. I suppose outside of the NHS, outside of your foundation program, and yeah, I think that's really quite inspiring. And that's that's probably why we were at the RGS Explore trying to find something sort of interesting mm-hmm. to do, wasn't it? Yeah, um, did you see anything interesting uh, thinking back to Borneo then? Yeah, so Borneo was uh, there were quite a few um, tropical things. Um, I suppose being in a, a hot environment um, and wet as well, there are lots of skin conditions. Um, but then we also had things like leptospirosis. Um, there's some with paratyphoid. 
someone else who had um, a sort of a septic bursitis that ended up going to theatre for a washout. It's all these things that sort of um, more presently, yeah, certainly in the tropics that we don't really tend to see here so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the tropics, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about them. I think I've not, not been there yet, but I just don't like the idea that everything wants to eat you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm but, definitely yeah. much more of a warm, a warm weather person and um, do my oh, best okay. to the cold. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and so, yes, yeah, snake bites. So I, I know you told me that the uh, the the labs and the facilities that are Liverpool are particularly good for for snake bite. Um, what sort of um, experiences or lectures sort of did you get that sort of um, gave you that interest uh, up in in Liverpool? Well, I think um, out of the three months, we only actually had one lecture on snake bite, which was by Professor Rob Harrison, um, who's uh-huh. instrumental in the snake bite work up in, in Liverpool. Um, so I found that was that was fascinating. And then at the towards the end of the um, uh, the diploma, we had a tour of the hepatarium there, and we you know saw lots of different snakes and, and a few other animals. Uh, saw the milking of the venom, um, and then it was sort of from there really just chatting in conversation that um, I ended up meeting David Worrell, who is um, oh, yes. professor, yeah. and he happened to be visiting Liverpool the following week. So I sort of googled him and realised well. He was um, would be someone who'd be you know great to meet and link up with. Uh, absolutely, for people who are listening who who don't don't know, could you just tell us a bit about? I think he's Sir David, isn't he? Um, not quite yet, but you know that's a, it's, it's not, oh, yeah, he's not on the way, is it? <laughs> I don't know, but yes. Uh, so Professor David Worrell is um, one of the experts in the world um, on snake bite. You know, he's written uh, the WHO guidelines, certainly for Southeast Asia, and you know, multiple publications, but. I mean, he's, he's snake bite is, is not the only area he's worked in. He's done other work on HIV and malaria, all sorts of things. Um, but he's certainly a very well-known name, very well-respected, um, and has done a lot of work, particularly in snake bite, and really has been instrumental in the um, in, in the movement to get it, uh, snake bite added back onto the list of neglected tropical diseases um, by the WHO, which has really been pivotal in sort of changing the um, uh, changing the tide, if you like, for snake bite. Yeah, because it's my mind's I think I was doing a bit of reading about snake bites um, sort of earlier this week, and uh, I think it was May, wasn't it, when the WHO have really yeah. said we need to start focusing on on snake bite as a disease burden because it's affecting so many um, people, and it's not just the initial bite; it's the sort of disabilities and potential amputations yeah. and things that you, that you can have as a as a result of that. Yeah, it was, it was June 2017 that they added it back onto their list of neglected tropical right. diseases. But it was in May that they released their sort of roadmap, which sort of outlines their plan. Um, and yeah, the overall sort yeah. of target is quite ambitious, but it's to halve death and disability from snake bite by 2030. So it's quite quite a big uh, challenge um, and a big task that's ahead. But certainly there's a, there's a lot that can be done. And, and as you say, there's so many different parts of, of the problem and different aspects to be worked on. Um, but I, but yeah. yes, now that there's more tension going into it yeah. and um, certainly the money now will follow um, and the Wellcome Trust have announced 80 million pounds to go into snake bite research, which is wonderful. So um, that's going to make a, a massive difference because um, here's a, an interesting fun fact for you is that um, the budget for the film Snakes on a Plane is more than all oh, the yeah. money that's gone into snake bite research in the last 10 years. That just gives you an idea about, you know. So we need Samuel L. Jackson to fake, to be the, be the face of, of, of snake bites and uh, probably uh, 
make all the difference. That's a sad fact, but it is it's quite interesting. I've not seen that film yet. I'll have to yeah, I haven't either uh, actually, but I I've been told on many accounts that it is, you know, average at best. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's very accurate as well. Um so yeah, tell me a bit. So you've been you've recently come back from doing some some research out in Myanmar, haven't you? That's right, yeah. So I um I went in January last well, at the beginning of 2019, and I got back in August. So I was there for about seven months um, and based in Yangon, uh, which was the old capital, uh, and based in a tertiary referral centre there. Yeah. And what exactly were you uh, researching? So my, my work there was sort of consisting of two parts mainly. So the first part was um, doing uh, some research, looking back through all the patient records, all the notes, for every patient admitted with snake bite in 2018, of which there were, well, about 499. Um, and sort of collecting a lot of information about what happened, the circumstances of the bite, like, you know, like what time of day, where was the bite yeah. on the body, who were the people affected, um, through to the treatment that they got and um, and, and the outcomes. Um, so that was, that was the one part of it. The second yeah, part... Yeah, that, that number, uh, what kind of geographical area are we, are we talking about in terms well, of the referral attachment for that tertiary centre? Yeah, I mean, actually, it, it was quite large. Um, there were patients, obviously, most patients came from the immediate surrounding areas, but we did have patients that were coming from, you know, quite far away. Um, and, and that was, I think, sometimes it was down to patient preference. They wanted to be transferred uh, okay. to Yangon. But patients that come out, you know, like maybe like uh, ten hours on a on a bus, it would have taken probably to to get down to Yangon. Right. Wow, yeah. The majority were a lot closer. Okay. Yeah. And um, so, so you were in in Yangon, they said for for, for seven months. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, how did how did things progress with the research during during that time? Yeah, so I mean, it was it was a sort of slower start as I expected because I, I thought it was really important to start off mainly just by observing and, you know, not having been to the country before, understand how did the, how does the hospital run? Um, the, you know, look, talk to people about what do they think the problems are with snake bite? You know, how is, what is the culture surrounding snake bite? Um, so all of that was really important to try and just be there and just listen and talk to people and ask a lot of questions really um, before making any sort of start on on the work, I mean, before I went, I had some ideas about what might be uh, useful to do. Um, having done a lot of talking to people and reading beforehand, but it was really what people on the ground wanted as well, rather than me coming in and sort of imposing um, what I thought was a good idea. And actually, when yeah. I started speaking to people and I said, you know, what what is the main problem? What what would make the most difference to snake bite in Myanmar? People said to me prevention. I thought, well, of course, yeah. you know, that's obvious and of course that's that's absolutely right and far better that we prevent snake bite rather than trying to you know deal with the consequences later on and that's why I ended up with with the second part of the project making these uh, posters um, which is more about patient and staff education about snake bite yeah absolutely I think I think you're you're spot on that if you you have to have the engagement of the population that you're you're trying to help otherwise yeah anything you try and suggests it's going to be futile isn't it well, did, you, did you find there was quite a lot of um sort of cultural differences or, or sort of local ways that they try and treat treat snake bites that was maybe different to what what you had read about or different to what 
you'd get in sort of your expedition wilderness textbook, for example, or... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, definitely one of the key problems surrounding snake bite in, well, many places in Asia and Africa. Um, The traditional treatments that are ineffective and can lead to harm uh, and and delay people getting to hospital or lead them to not go at all. So, for example, a lot of people are using tourniquets, um, which is not really effective and and can lead to to harm. Uh, We've got people who are doing tattooing as well. People are doing cutting to try and sort of release right. the venom. And in fact, there was, you know, there have been cases where people have, uh, in doing this sort of cutting around the wound, they've actually then got tetanus and ended up in intensive care because of tetanus uh, and nothing to do with the, the actual snake bite itself. I suppose the difficulty is often working out whether they've actually had an envenomation or not. But uh, yeah, you're, yeah, you're exactly right because. Not every snake bite means um, someone is envenomed. You, a lot of the time, it's it could actually be, be what's called a dry bite. So if the snake yeah. has bitten something else recently, then it may well bite you but not inject venom. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and any other um, sort of uh, different health beliefs that you came across whilst you were, whilst you were out there? Um, there was another interesting one which I hadn't read about, which was about um, people putting half a chicken over the wound as well. And that was um, that was really interesting. Is this, is this a live chicken or no, chicken raw? Um, it, it's a dead ch- half of a chicken, so therefore um, must be dead, I presume. Um, yeah. But that's it's really fascinating. Um, understanding why that happened, and you know, as me me going out there, I thought I would do Burmese lessons, um, and it was it's quite a difficult and challenging language, I have to say. Um, but it's not just us as foreigners that find the language difficult. It's a, it's a language where um, it's all about how you say the word. So the same words said in different ways with different sort of intonations can mean different things. And a previous public health message had gone out um, telling people to use tourniquets, which is obviously, obviously not the right thing to do. And the word for tourniquet is Jesse in Burmese. Um, but that word yeah. said slightly differently means half a chicken. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So some people have heard that word and, and misinterpreted it. And there yeah. we are. So it's not just um, it's not just the foreigners that find the, the Burmese language difficult. Clearly, well, I just show the importance of, I suppose, good and clear health promotion, and and, and that's what the second part of your your project was was uh, trying to work on, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. There were some um, posters made in 1994 um, by uh, I think the Ministry of Health and WHO, but could um, they could have well they could do with some updating and. I uh, basically sort of went round asking doctors and nurses, you know, what do you like about these? Um, well, a lot, some of them were cartoons. Um, and, and what do you not like? And, and what could we do better? And these posters were about snake bite prevention, snake bite first aid, uh, and what not to do. Um, and also the venomous snakes of Myanmar. So, you know, I got right. this list of things that we could improve on. Um, but actually, the one thing that otherwise would have passed me by with these cartoons was the cartoon character that was used. And it was this character called Tupi and his you know, powers. Um, and so I thought oh, it would be really great if we could use the same cartoon character again to make the new ones because he got s- such overwhelming positive feedback. Um, oh, okay. Is he yeah. based on sort of a traditional caricature or, or something like that? Yeah. Or? It's a cartoon character of a farmer sort of carrying a shotgun, oh, okay. wearing traditional Burmese dress. Yeah. So someone that oh, would okay. be more easily relatable, I, I hope, to um, the sort of rural agricultural um, community which is affected yeah. by snake bite as well 
And at the time, I was doing some uh, writing some articles for the newspaper, the um, Myanmar Times, and every article I'd written had a cartoon that went with it. So I contacted the cartoonist and said, you know, what, what can I can you draw this uh, cartoon character or, you know, what are the copyright laws? Is this possible? Yeah. And and basically he said, you know, really with the cartoon, with the copyright laws, although they're a bit sketchy, but he said, you know, it, it shouldn't really be reproduced uh, by anyone else but it seemed uh, it turned out that the man who'd made the original cartoons had passed away but then through some uh, means of investigation I managed to find out that his widow was actually still alive and making the cartoons still so I put out um, a post on this popular Facebook group because Myanmar is very uh, it uses Facebook a lot and relies on it for uh-huh. all means of communication and, and not really they don't really use websites so I put this post okay. out and I said, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what who, who I am. Does anyone know how I can find this lady? Um, and basically, right. to cut a long story short, I was given an address. Um, so I pitched up at this place, having driven about 45 minutes with someone who could speak uh, better Burmese than I, and managed to find this lady um, who agreed to uh, give us the copyright and, and, and link me up with her current cartoonist, um, which was brilliant. And then we sort of worked together to make the new cartoons. Excellent, and um, I, I've seen those, and we'll, I'll include a, a link and sort of when, when we post the podcast because they are good to look at as well and, and sort of see the context. But I think you, you also mentioned, you know, quite importantly that most of, or certainly a lot of, in my understanding at least, a lot of this, the kind of morbidity and mortality occurs main, mainly in rural areas. Do you think that's that's about right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the people who are affected are uh, commonly um, people who are, rural remote areas and often the farming community yeah. it's the people out wearing often inadequate footwear um in the paddy fields um because the main uh crop out in Myanmar is rice so that yeah it's often it's the farmers that are affected. and i suppose yeah just thinking about footwear and that that's quite i mean certainly it's, it's it seems on on the surface at least that that's a fairly straightforward thing to change but in practice i suppose it's it's not always as e- as easy as it sounds yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a lot easier, I think, to go through wet, boggy fields in in no shoes than it is to sort of try and plump yeah. around in some big, heavy boots. Um, mm. Yeah. But yeah. And do you think what about sort of access to anti venoms and, and and things like that in 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 more rural areas? Do you think that's something that also needs to change? It's difficult to say. Um, I suspect the answer is probably yes, um, but I I can't tell you really. Um, what the availability is in, in really remote and rural areas. I mean, what I can say is that often people had had um, a lower dose than um, than the guidelines um, in more rural um, areas, but I can't say why. I mean, is that because it wasn't available? Or, I mean, anecdotally, that's what people have said. Um, yeah. Or is it because people are not giving it because they're scared about the reaction that you might get with antivenom or... Mm. Uh, they're not so sure you can call kind of and, and then sort of similar things to, to yeah. that. Is that is that right? Yeah. So the the antivenom can cause anaphylaxis. Yeah. So it's not without risk. No. And I suppose. Do you think? So I was having a think about this um, just just this afternoon actually. Um, so I do a bit of work with um, a telemedical chat. Do you think there's sort of a role for some of these tertiary centres to maybe have a telemedical consulting? Uh, service with maybe the more rural outposts and looking at 
at Snakebite, do you think there's a role for something like that? Um, I mean, certainly it seems that telemedicine uh, seems to be the future, doesn't it? And certainly in remote areas where you're far from help, I'm sure people, well, I'm, I'm sure support, extra support is, a, is always a good thing, right? Yeah, I think so. And just speaking of sort of that, have you got any any more research planned or are you, what's, what does the future hold? Well, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to go and do some more work in Snakebite. Um, I've got loads of ideas, but I, I don't know as yet what will what will come next at the moment? I think I'm just focusing on the rest of ST3. Um, but yeah, yeah, certainly, that certainly sounds about enough. what comes next. Yeah, and I suppose if we if we sort of think um, to to sort of the wilderness setting, say uh, say for medics who are out on an expedition, um, and you know they they're worried about snake bite. Have you got any any advice that you can that you can give for that? Yeah, I suppose um, it's it's firstly important to know wherever you're going, thinking about what might be there. So uh, there are different types of, uh, I suppose, syndromes of envenoming that you might get with different types of snakes. So broadly speaking, you've got ones that can affect uh, your breathing and you get a neurotoxic picture that can end up in respiratory paralysis, which might mean that you've got an airway to deal with quickly on your hands. Um, and on the other side, you've got ones that can cause hemotoxicity um, and affect your blood clotting um, as well. Uh, and there's obviously a, a lot of other things yeah. that I can do as well, but broadly speaking, in a simplified manner. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess avoidance is the most important thing then, I would, you know, I'd say. Sorry, say again? Uh, avoidance is probably the best <laughs> thing then, if well, possible. I wouldn't be faced with either of those, ideally. Yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, thinking about prevention and how you're going to avoid it, things like keeping your camp clean um, so you're not leaving out litter or food that might attract rodents, which will then subsequently attract snakes. Um, yeah, making sure if you're going out to go to the toilet in the night that you're using um, using a light so you're not going to step on anything in the dark, uh, making a bit of noise um, and wearing adequate, uh, adequate footwear. Of course, all these kind of basic things, absolutely, are really important um, in terms of prevention. In terms yes. of, sorry, do go on. You no, know, I was going to say, in terms of if you do get bitten, um, then you yes, then there's the appropriate first aid to take, and then making sure that you've got a Kazavac plan in place, that you know exactly where you're going to go and which facilities have the the antivenom that you might need, because the last thing you want is to to delay mm. um, getting to the right place because you you're doing a little tour of places that don't have the right treatment. Yeah, I guess it comes back to the always do your research, always be prepared. So then you shouldn't have an issue if if that situation arises because it's it's very unusual to have any antivenom in a medical kit, and you, you, you'd be reluctant given a potential side effect profile. I think to to use it anyway, you'd have to be in a pretty dire situation, wouldn't you? Yes, I think it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? And I think probably case by case needs to be weighed up. But I mean, some antivenoms. You, uh, they have to be kept in a um, cold chain, so you may or may not be able to do that. Some products you can have a lyophilized um, sort of freeze dried version that you just mix up with water to make, but you've got to be sure that you know exactly what the indications for giving it are, and then you know weighing up the risks of are you going to be able to manage uh, the anaphylaxis as well, um, all these kind of things. But I believe the military sometimes you know take it out, so it's. I think uh, yeah. case by case basis, probably. Yeah, of course, and, and I suppose the other thing is that uh, you have to be quite good at identifying the snake. Well, I mean, so often it's just not possible, is it? I mean, things happen very quickly. Yeah. 
I mean, sometimes patients, it, it, certainly in, in Myanmar, we saw this a lot, people would bring in a, a dead snake. But I think it's trying to be very clear in the history, is this definitely the snake that bit that person? Um, yeah. Often, if you don't get the snake, then you're just relying on the uh, on the clinical picture. Uh, you know, is this a neurotoxic type picture? In which case it's going to be, you know, A, B or C. If it's not, then what else could it be? And knowing what's in the in that uh, area, I suppose, so what what it could be. Yeah, well, that, no, that makes sense. And I suppose just just because we haven't, we've we've said about sort of the things not to do. So don't put a chicken or half a chicken on, on a snake bite um, or, or tourniquets. But if we should we just go through, I suppose, for, for some of the listeners, what how we should manage it. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, if you've got um, if you've got some water, then just a quick clean of the area. Um, if someone's been bitten, then it's really important that you keep that person immobilized that limb immobilized because what happens when a snake bites is the venom goes into the tissues and drains into the lymphatics and then into the bloodstream so if you're moving that limb or those muscles around the bite site then those muscles will contract and help to push the venom sort of around the circulation so immobilizing the limb is important then there are a couple of different techniques um but you there's a in Myanmar they use the uh, local pressure pad uh, technique where you you get a let's say a piece of gauze but a piece of material maybe three times three centimeters pop it over the bite site and then you sort of strap um, a bandage or some sort of material across that area uh, as tightly as you would strap an ankle uh, in other places yeah. they use um, they use strapping the whole limb so from distal to proximal regardless of where the bite site is on the limb you just go from you start at the very tips of your fingers if it's on the arm all the way up to the axilla um, and then immobilize and then just get them to uh, get them to hospital or some sort of um, yeah. facility yeah and i suppose the the important thing if we think of uh, you know all our training is is seeing safety you don't want to become another person who's been bitten by the snake absolutely so I suppose have to look out for that absolutely yeah the the d of the doctor abc yeah, yeah. well excellent that's been a fantastic a fantastic chat. Um, thank you very much for, for joining me. Um, You're welcome. It's been great. Thanks for having me. A great overview of, of snake bite and, and some, of, some of the research. And who knows, maybe we'll see you getting involved with the WHO in the future. Um, otherwise, I suppose uh, this is probably officially the Christmas episode. So uh, I'll let you get off to, to your Christmas drinks in a minute. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I'll, I'm sure I'll see you in the new year. Yes, have a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. And you take care now. Thanks, bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Check out our website at www.thewildernessmedic.com.